Once when I was an undergraduate, my professor, who was not a Christian, opened his Religions 101 course by asking the question, Who here has read Harry Potter? So many hands went up. It's a great book. He followed up by asking about uh, other works of literature, Lord of the Rings, even better, right? The Catcher in the Rye, To Kill a Mockingbird. On and on he went, and hand after hand went up. And it was always clear with each question that the majority of the class had read each and every one of those books. And then he made his point. He asked the question, how many of you have read the Bible? Slowly those hands went down. It was clear that a very small percentage of the class had actually read their Bibles. And he pressed his point home by saying this, if God wrote a book, wouldn't you read it? Wouldn't it be the most important and precious book in your life? How many of you read your Bible? How many of you can say, with a clear conscience, that the Bible is the most important and precious book in your life? How many of you can say that it is the authority in your life? That it rules you? We're in Acts chapter 17 this morning. We're going to cover the first 15 verses. And I'm going to exhort you to be ruled by Scripture, to delight in it. To indeed make the Bible the most important and precious book in your life. I'm going to urge you to submit to God's word rather than your feelings. And it's God's word that testifies to what the main idea of our text is. That Jesus is the promised Messiah who died to forgive sins and rose to free his people from death. And some of you are going, wait a minute, are you just lazy? That was last week's main idea. No, I'm I'm not lazy. But it is the main idea of this section. Paul is proclaiming Christ from the Scriptures. The Scriptures prove that Jesus has been crucified for sin and has been raised from the dead for our justification. So that is indeed the main idea again this week. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to hear what you might say to us through your word. We ask that you would calm our spirits, that we might hear from you, that you would set our attention on Christ, ask that you would forgive us of any persisting sins, that nothing would stand between our fellowship with you and with one another. We come expectantly now asking you to speak to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Acts, we've said we've been in Acts, we've been working through Acts, we said uh, the message can be summarized as Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. We've seen that happen throughout Acts, right? Early on, Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven from where he rules and reigns and pours out his Holy Spirit. 
His Spirit fills up his church. They testify in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And God is bringing people into his family. He's building his kingdom. Jesus is building his church. We've followed Paul on his uh, first missionary journey, and now on his second, we saw him take the gospel to Philippi, and now he is in Thessalonica, where we read in verse 1, after they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So Paul comes with that same message following that same pattern. He is preaching the truth that Jesus has been testified to by Scripture, that he had to suffer and die, and that he had to rise from the dead. We covered this last week, so it's going to be a little bit of review, but it's good review. So you say, well, why did Jesus have to die? The answer is because God is holy. And his holy character demands that evil be dealt with. God will not simply sweep evil under the rug and forget about it. He's going to deal with it. He's going to punish it. He's going to punish it justly. And so the question becomes, how can God punish evil rightly because he is just and yet save sinners? How can he end evil without ending you and me? The answer is ultimately that Jesus takes on our sin and dies as our substitute in our place on the cross. The eternity of God's wrath and hell, earned by our rebellion against God, doing things our way rather than his way, is taken by Jesus on the cross. You get that? On the cross, Jesus is paying a debt that you never could. He is the perfect man. He lived a perfect life, the life you and I should have lived, and then he dies a substitutionary death, a death that you and I deserve to die. He dies to forgive our sins. We we get his blessing. He takes our curse. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. He hands to us the cup of God's blessing. This is why Jesus had to die, so that God could be righteous in punishing sin and make righteous those who put their faith in Christ. This is how God ends evil without ending us. Jesus dies to forgive sins. That's why it's necessary for the Messiah to suffer. It's also necessary for the Messiah to rise from the dead. Because after all, what good is a dead Messiah? If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then the crucifixion means nothing. The resurrection is the completion of the crucifixion. A bloodless Christianity, Christianity without the cross, is a worthless Christianity. And a Dead Jesus is a powerless Jesus, is a false Jesus. A Christianity without Jesus on the cross and without Jesus ascended to the throne wearing a crown and ruling and reigning is worth nothing. 
So we should cast out all sentimental versions of Christianity that deny his death or his resurrection. They are essential. They are of first importance. I mean, we can't can't emphasize that enough. Indeed, Acts 2.24 testifies that God raised Jesus up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. When our faith is in him, it's impossible for death to hold us either. This is our hope. Resurrection, not just from physical death. Physical death is a symbol, it's terrible, but it anticipates a far worse death, stretched out across eternity under God's wrath. It is a warning to us that we must repent and put our faith in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, if we are to have peace with God. And so if we're going to summarize the message of Christianity, it's this. God is holy, we are not Jesus saves. If you turn from your sin, you too can be part of the family of God. Well, what we're saying as Christians is there is one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to have peace with God is if we turn from our sin, turn from following our hearts, and obey Jesus' voice, obey God's word. That's the claim of Christianity that we must repent of our sins and submit ourselves to Jesus' lordship. In our text, we see two ways of responding to this claim. With feelings of contempt or with consideration of the facts. We're going to start with feelings of contempt. You can look with me at verse 5. But the Jews became jealous. And they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Skip to verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. So not everyone enjoys this message that Paul is proclaiming. They respond to his claim with contempt. Contempt is uh, when you have a, the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, is worthless or deserving of scorn. So they're not even going to consider this idea. They're filled with jealousy. You can see it in verse 5. And so they form a mob with the intent of bringing Paul before the city officials and punishing him. They can't find Paul, and so they, they grab Jason, and they drag him before the city officials. They're shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and that's not a good thing. Right? Sometimes I've heard messages on this passage uh, preached like, Christians turn the world upside down. Right? 
that's fine, I get the intent. But that's not how these guys are talking about Paul and company. Turning the world upside down is not a good thing. Chelsea and I, uh, we foster care. We do foster care. And so one of the, the girls, when she first came to us, what she did at every meal was she, she would take her plate full of food and she'd turn it upside down onto the floor. And we didn't go, she's turning the world upside down, praise God. This is great. No, no, we, we were like, this is terrible. There's food everywhere. It's not a good thing to turn your plate upside down. It's not a, they're not saying it's a good thing for them to turn the world upside down. What they're saying is this, these Christians are making a mess of everything. They're destabilizing our society. This is a problem. It needs to be dealt with. So they go looking for Paul, and they can't find Paul, and so they're like, hey, this guy that Paul's staying with, we're going to take him before the city officials. These city's officials, they, they respond better than the Philippian magistrate. They're like, well, we're, we're going to slow down on the persecution here. We'll just take a bond from Jason and send uh, Paul elsewhere. It, just that means is they took some money from Jason, and they said, if Paul screws up again, uh, we're going to keep your money, just like, just like bond works today. So the brothers in Thessalonica send Paul and Silas on their way to Berea, and they begin preaching the gospel there. But these people, these Jews from Thessalonica, they hear that Paul is continuing to preach the word in Berea. And so they go there. And it's, it's not a quick trip. We're talking about 45, 50-ish miles in two days. So they hear that, that Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel in Berea, and they go to get them there. They want to shut this message down. This is a really devoted mob. Paul cannot escape their persecution. He is being targeted and threatened for his Christianity. Is this still true? Christians in our contemporary world are targeted, persecuted, and killed. But look no further than last weekend when we were celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. Our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka were mourning the loss of loved ones. They were targeted and killed. Why? Well, because they had sought to worship Jesus. They had sought to affirm this message, this claim that Jesus has been crucified for sin and raised from the dead. We should allow persecution of Christians to remind us of a few things. It should cause us to count our blessings that we enjoy great safety here in our country. It should cause us to count the cost of following Jesus. And it should cause us to clothe ourselves with the divine armor of God. This should remind us that, that we are at war. Not with flesh and blood, but with forces of evil that are unseen. It should send us to praying and trusting God. It should cause us to resolve to, to preach the gospel and love our neighbors well. Because this is precisely what Jesus has done for us. I mean, it wasn't, just even in Paul's case, it wasn't too long before this that he was persecuting the church, targeting Christians. God can save anyone. Well, it wasn't that long ago 
that you or I were in rebellion against God and in love with our sin. Just as Titus says in 3.3, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But praise God that He didn't give up on us. But instead, He proves His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, we ought to love our enemies as God has loved us. And I'm not calling you to foolishness here, but to wise loving of your neighbors and of those who don't know Christ. Don't, don't be fooled by the wonderful security we enjoy here. The world hates God is at war with God. As, as John 3 says, loves the darkness rather than the light. Jesus tells us in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of it, and the world hates you. If you associate with Jesus... You will be hated. That's why we take up a cross when we follow Him. Paul's work, his preaching, is not unopposed. He's in constant danger. We might not be in constant danger here, but we should be prepared for it. We should be resolved to follow Paul's example. Continue following Jesus. Continue preaching the gospel because he is worth it. He's worth it. Also ask ourselves this question, why are these Jews in particular rejecting Christianity's claim? And you can see there in verse 5, it says, the Jews became jealous. It's almost comical that in their jealousy, they, they see some Jews are converting to Christianity and Gentiles along with them. And they, they don't think about whether or not the message is true. They just think about their own popularity, their own influence, and their own power. And they see that they're losing some of that. So they become jealous. And they do just ridiculous. This is the funny part. They, they just go out into the marketplace and they, they, they just gather up some ruffians or, or wicked people, guys just ready to fight. It's like, hey, you, you guys want to start a riot? Right? And they're like, yeah, why not? Sounds good. And they stir up agitation to, to persecute Christians. And I think just one, at a minimum, what we look here is, is that it's never, it's never a good idea to approach any truth claim, and especially the claim of Christianity, by getting mad at it. Right? Uh, putting your hands over your ears and stamping your feet because you don't like something doesn't invalidate an argument. doesn't make it go away. It's foolish to ignore something simply because you don't like it. Right? Imagine you lived uh, on the coast in Florida during hurricane season and there's a Category 5, it's bearing down on you, evacuation has been ordered, and you go, you know what? I really like living here. But I don't like hurricanes so much. So I'm just going to stay and not worry about it. 
can be catastrophic. It's foolish to follow what you would like to be correct, to follow your feelings rather than facts. Likewise, it's foolish for these Jews to follow their jealousy and what they would like to be true rather than considering the evidence. It is spiritual suicide to obey your feelings rather than the Word of God. You need look no further than Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 9 and 10. Read it earlier. God has laid out very strict commands for them to follow in the temple. They decide all on their own, probably even well-intentioned. We really feel like worshiping God this way. He'll really like this. And they end up dead. We worship God according to how he has revealed himself. He demands and deserves to be worshipped according to his word. It's easy to kind of thumb our noses at the Thessalonians and go, they didn't get it. These jealous Jews, they're so stupid. But how often are we just like them? When scripture rubs up against how we feel about something, all of a sudden we're looking for ways to justify acting however we want. We, we, um, the, the young couple who's not yet married says, you know what, we want to wait till after we have good careers to get married. And so since we're married in our hearts, it's okay that we sleep together now. It's okay that we live together now. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that sex is something reserved for marriage. That it tells us something of the glories of God. It tells us something of the church's union with Christ. But I, you know, I'm a young couple. I don't like that. And so I'll just follow my feelings here. God's word doesn't really mean that. You see how this works? It's easy to follow our feelings rather than God's word, but it is suicide. Do not be foolish. Submit to God's word. Consider the truth. That's what, that's what the first group of Thessalonians do in the temple. If you want to look back in verse 4, Paul proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. And we read, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of other leading women. Just note here, that it took Paul three Sabbath days, three weeks of reasoning with them. Just make this point that conversion doesn't always happen overnight or all at once. It takes time sometimes. Sure, some folks have the experience of all at once coming alive to God. But others, it's a much slower experience. Sometimes it happens over, over years. I don't have any teenagers, um, but I imagine if I did, there'd probably be a couple methods for waking them up in the morning. I don't know why this is a caricature, but maybe it's true that they just like to sleep really late into the day. Um, but I, so, so approach one would be, you, you go into the room, you flip on the lights, you fling open the curtains, and you say, what a beautiful morning it is. And they're up and out of bed. So method number two is the kinder method, right? You just go in there, and maybe you have like a dimmer light, and just 
Turn on really slowly. Come over, put your hand on their back. Honey, honey, it's time to get up. You leave and you come back five, ten minutes later to turn that light a little bit brighter on. Hey, hey, it's time to get up. And eventually they, they wake up. This is so too with conversion. People wake up different ways. Right? For some people, God's word will hit their heart. It'll be like a light switch was flipped up and the curtains were flung open and they're alive and ready to go and they're happy about it. Others will be like that dimmer switch is coming on. And before they know it, they're awake. And if they're like me, they're not actually happy about it at first. I love when I hear conversion stories. They're like, I call them begrudging conversion stories where they're like, I just had to accept that Jesus was risen. It takes me like an hour after I wake up in the morning to get, you know, kind of pleasant. And that's being generous. I think sometimes conversion's like that. Where they're like, I'm awake, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not ready to admit it yet, and I'm not ready to talk about it. But the light is coming on. And so, so my point here, the application is, be patient and persistent in your evangelism. Be patient and persistent in sharing God's word and in praying for those who do not yet know Jesus. These Thessalonians believe in Jesus. They're persuaded. We also see that the Bereans are persuaded. Look at verse 11. I'm going to back up into the second part of verse 10. Paul and Silas are arriving at Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. I do love Luke describes them as noble. This gives us ideas of you know, aristocracy and, and wealth, but also of, of open mindedness, that they're open to reason. And this isn't kind of our, our culture's version of open mindedness where you don't ever really believe anything. Just take all kinds of information in and you don't come down hard and fast on any distinct truth claims. This is more like uh, what G.K. Chesterton would say, uh, the point of an open mind is to close it on something, right? That you would form convictions, but those convictions wouldn't come apart from reason. That you would consider the evidence and then make a decision, closing your mind on something. But but they're called open-minded or reasonable here, and that's in contrast to those who treat the message with contempt and are filled with jealousy back in Thessalonica. There's another reason for this word noble. I don't know if you you caught this or not, but look back in verse 4. There's a small description. Including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of leading women. Then here, those of noble character and including prominent Greek women as well as prominent men, right? These are people who are being converted. Well, why is Luke emphasizing that people of prominence are coming to faith? Let's ask ourselves, who is this book written to? Well, let's remember it's part two of a two-part volume. It's Luke volume two. If you remember all the way back in Luke chapter one, Luke writes, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It seemed good to me also, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, 
most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. And then our book in Acts chapter 1 opens this way, Luke volume 2. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had been given instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And and so why the attention on the nobility and on the prominence of these people? Because Theophilus is a prominent person. Luke is saying to his original audience, Theophilus, people like you, good, prominent, reasonable people, are believing this gospel because it's reasonable, because it's true. So you too should repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. And there's just kind of this implicit question because there is a just stark contrast between the Thessalonians and the Bereans. Who do you want to be like? Who do you want to be like? Do you want to be like the dishonorable mob from Thessalonica? Or do you want to be like the noble Bereans? That's easy, right? We, all, we want to be like the Bereans. We want to be reasonable and noble. What do we say? How do we do that? How do we do that? Five points of application. One, we receive the word of God. You can see that verse 11. They're of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word. Received the word. So this just means that we are open to hearing from God and ensuring that what we hear from God is, in fact, the word of God. So uh, each week, this is one of the many reasons that we come together. We come together to hear God's word, to listen to it, and to make sure that what's being preached accords with Scripture. This is why we do expository preaching. We want to expose the main idea of the text. We want to expose what God has said in his word so that we might understand how we are to obey him, so we might know him more and be moved to worship. really great example of this uh, kind of preaching, and um, if, you, if mine wasn't good enough, right, uh, is uh, Nehemiah and company in Nehemiah chapter 8. Just love this scene. Uh, they've built the walls of the temple uh, they're coming together. There's this big renewal of the covenant. Revival is getting ready to break out. And they find the book of Moses. And they're like, bring the book. We've got, to, we've got to hear from this book. And so Nehemiah opens it in verse 8. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared. Since today is holy to our Lord, do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. 
Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration because they understood the words that were explained to them. How do you listen to God's word proclaimed? When we open this book, are you sent to mourning over your sin? When we open this book, are you sent to celebrating your salvation? Indeed, the gospel sends us to both mourning and celebrating. What a great reminder that when we come together on the Lord's Day, it indeed is holy. That our response to hearing God's word proclaimed should be repentance and rejoicing. When we leave this place, our response should be, let us eat and drink and be merry because yesterday we were dead. We're alive in Christ. No longer captive to our sins. I wonder if you listen to the word this way. You're ready to receive what, what God has said. Or if maybe you come just because you have to or because it feels like that's the obligation of that day and you kind of have your ears covered and your feet stamping because you don't like what you're hearing. Application number two, approach the word with eager expectation. People were more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness, eager expectation. I think we all, we all look forward to lots of things in life. Like every morning I look forward to my cup of coffee. Doesn't always agree with me, but I still love it, right? Every evening I look forward, not every evening, that's a little dramatic, but many evenings I look forward to putting my kids in bed. I love them. I love you. No offense. Look forward to these things. Or, you know, I look, I look forward to sporting events. I'm going to watch some hoops this afternoon, I hope, Lord willing. And there are things that you look forward to. We should look forward to God's word this way. We should, we should come expecting to encounter God. Is that how you come to church? Is that how you come to your Bible? Come expecting eagerly desiring it. Number three, slow down and examine. They received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures. Slow down. and Some of the best things in life come slow. They take time. When we come to this book so often, even in my own life, I'm, I'm rushing. I think so many of us suffer from hurry sickness. There's hurrying here and hurrying there, and there's never any peace in our life. We fill up our calendars as full as they can get. We've got to go, 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 go. Got to get it done, and we forget what's of first importance. I do, I do this. I'm guilty. Like, you would think as a pastor, it'd be really easy for me to just sit in my Bible all day, every day, but it's not, it's not typically like that, right? I have to have a quiet time just like you. And oftentimes, it's tempting to go, well, 15, 30 minutes, however long, and put a timetable on it and say, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to check the box. I'm going to move on. But friends, some of the best things in life come slow. And this is, this is something that you need to, to soak in. I enjoy smoking delicious meats. Love it. Right? There's something really fun about firing up the grill, 
putting a couple chickens on there, and letting them just smoke all day. Now, you can make chicken or turkey in, in the microwave, but the quality of it goes way, way down. Right? But man, you, you take the time to prepare and cook and, and smoke that meat, there's a really good reward at the end of the tunnel. I mean, it's, it's delicious. And I think so many of us prefer kind of a, a fast food version of our quiet time and of our Christianity and of our approach to the Bible. Oh, I'm going to quick to put my order in, get it, and go. It's actually really unhealthy for us. We don't get the nutrients we need. Well, we really need to take a, a smoking approach where we're sitting in the Scripture all day and it's affecting the way we smell. Right? If you've ever been around someone who smokes cigars or cigarettes, there's a, you know that you can smell them, right? We want to smell of the Scriptures because we've just been smoking in it. I can't emphasize enough how important it is for you to spend time in God's Word. In the introduction of his book, Future Grace, John Piper celebrates the place of unrushed reflection in the Christian life. And he asks his reader to make space for it. He says this, Oh, the riches of understanding that come from lingering in thought over a new idea or a new expression of an old idea. I would like this book to be read in the same way that the Apostle Paul wanted his letters to be read by Timothy. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Every book worth reading beckons with the words, think over what I say. When my sons complain that a book is too hard to read, I say, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. You understand his illustration there? It's really easy to come to Scripture with a rake and just kind of go on that top layer. But if you do that, you'll mostly get leaves. He's saying if you take time to dig and mine Scripture, oh, well, you'll find some diamonds. Church, we want to be a people that is about mining the diamonds of Scripture. I'm telling you, uh, there are great benefits to listening to somebody explain the Bible to you. And it can be for, it's for your joy and for your good moves you to worship. But there's also something special about spending time alone in the Word and discovering some of these truths all on your own. The special blessing God has when he meets you there. Dig for diamonds. Reading the Bible isn't about how much time you spend, or how the breadth of your reading, but how deep you go. How, how far you reflect on it. How, how deeply the word gets into you. Examine the scriptures. Slow down. And examine. And we also want to slow down daily. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. There are things that you do every day. You check uh, Facebook, uh, other social media, maybe you check your phone, or maybe you're a newspaper reader. There's something that you do every day, and it's because you enjoy doing that. Friends, we need to approach our Bibles this way. It needs to be something that we look after. It needs to be that cup of coffee in the morning. It needs to be checking your social media. It needs to be better than that, more important than that. We should do it daily. Because in God's word, we meet God. 
And that's it's not to say that every time you have a quiet time that you're going to have this warm, fuzzy, struck-by-lightning experience, okay? It's not to say that every time you listen to a sermon, uh, you're going to get the feels. It is to say that over time, that daily practice, God will sculpt you and shape you more and more into the image of Christ. It's for your good. You want to spend time in God's word daily. We want to slow down and examine the scriptures. We want to slow down daily. Lastly, number five, we want to see if this, these things are so. We examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We don't want to be stupid. Like you don't want to just listen to what I say and then take it to the bank. You want to examine what I'm saying next to the scripture. My words have authority and power insofar as they accord with what God has said to us in his word. Same is true for any Christian preacher, any Christian teacher. This is really important because not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. And not every Christian teacher is a good teacher. There are false teachers out there. A good example of this came to us in a New York Times article last weekend wherein Serene Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary, was asked by columnist Nicholas Kristof, do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? Jones responded, When you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Is she right? No, of course not. Of course not. We don't need to look any further than Acts chapter 17 where Paul mentions the bodily resurrection of Jesus over and over again. Right? Just in those first three verses. Proving it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Or in 1 Corinthians where he writes at the beginning of chapter 15, I preach to you which you received on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved the message that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important, of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Later on in verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Like Jones is at odds with the apostolic teaching. She's at odds with the teaching of the New Testament. She's at odds with the teaching of the prophets that came before. She's at odds with the whole Bible. Her teaching is sub-Christian. A, a Christianity without a bodily resurrection is pitiful. If the empty tomb is just a sentimental symbol of how these intangible loves in our lives cannot be killed, whatever that means, then it's pointless. Jesus had to rise from the dead. The idea that the resurrection or, or an empty tomb is a, a mere symbol is of hell. It's wrong. Jesus really bled He's really risen. He has 
scars in his hands to prove it. Our king is alive. We don't worship a dead Jesus. We worship the one who's seated at the right hand of God right now. Interceding for you and me. He is risen, and friends, Scripture testifies to it. And so we ought to submit ourselves to considering the facts of Jesus' resurrection. Submit ourselves to God's Word rather than our feelings. Church, I pray that this would be our posture, that we would come to God's Word expectantly, ready to hear from God, ready to encounter Him. Pray that this morning we would be sobered by the reality of our sin, that we would mourn over it, that we would repent and enjoy the forgiveness that God gives to us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess that we often come too flippantly to this book. Lord, our brothers and sisters throughout history have died so that we could have this Bible. Men were burned at stakes so that we could read your word. Too often we come to hear from you and we don't smell the stench of their burning flesh. This word is a precious gift to us. For in it you reveal yourself to us. It is your word that is the power of salvation. We pray that you would give us a deeper appreciation for your book. That indeed it would be the most important book in our lives that it would be changing us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.